The episode of I Think Therefore I Fan you are about to listen to contains spoilers for the following programs and movies. Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, Star Trek, that would be Star Trek The Next Generation, the original Star Trek, and Star Trek Enterprise, Chronicles of Narnia, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, Wicked, Carnival Row, Room 104, On Becoming a God in Central Florida, and It Chapter 2. You've been warned. Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Think, Therefore I Fan, a pop culture and philosophy podcast. On this podcast, we'll explore the most compelling philosophical themes as we find them in all of everyone's favorite fandoms. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Richard Green. And I'm Dr. Rachel Robison Green. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Okay, so what, what do we have on tap for this week? Today we're talking to Jim Okapal. Our, our old friend Jim Okapal. He's been on the show before yeah, uh, yeah. during the, our, our segments on the, from the PCA. Uh, but we're going to be talking to him about Aristotelian models of friendship in uh, Harry Potter and of thinking about issues of moral considerability um, and moral status and so on through the use of sci-fi. Mm-hmm. So it should be a lot of fun. Yeah, sci-fi, and um, if he's going to talk about what I think he's going to talk about, and in no way are we recording this segment um, after the interview. Um, <laughs> also fantasy a little bit, yep. right? So good good elements of both. All right, um, we've got quite a bit on the interview and um, our usual um, segments at the end, so shall we dive right in? Sure. Okay, so let's go to our interview with Jim Okapal. Good morning, Jim. How are you? Uh, good morning, Richard. I'm great. It's great to be back. How are you? Very good. It's, yeah, it's nice to talk to you. So um, those of you who listen to our series um, from the PCA in Season 3 um, will remember our old friend Jim Okapal, who we're talking to today. Um, so you wanted to talk about um, work that you're doing on science fiction and fantasy and maybe a little more on fantasy this time, right? Yeah, so getting into some little bit more detail about the, the theoretical aspects of it and, and how this can be kind of like the interesting insights um, uh, that I often get by looking at science fiction and fantasy instead of just looking at, at philosophy sometimes. Nice. All right. Well, let's let's do it. What are you, what are you working on right now? Well, uh, right now, um, as uh, you interviewed Kyle Johnson when you were at the PCA too, and he's got this project uh, where like uh, pop culture and as philosophy. Mm-hmm. And so I'm working on something for him. And as part of that, you know, I, I've, I've been doing a lot of stuff on science fiction for years, but I've, I've been kind of moving back toward fantasy recently. And so the thing I'm, I'm working on now is um, notions of friendship in Harry Potter. Especially oh, nice. in um, the way that I'm going to focus on friend, Aristotle's theory of friendship and its relationship to um, the Half-Blood Prince, 
Great, so yeah. We'll focus on the movie version more uh, than than the, say the the novel, but yeah. So just kind of doing that. So uh, as we then, um, as we dive into that, I I should just say Kyle's got everybody in the world working on this. So <laughs> Rates Rates is yeah. working on one um, pertaining to um, Marvel, and I don't know if it's more specific than that. Um, and I'm going to be doing one on Russian Doll um, a little later this year. I think I've got an April due date. Oh, so. That since we, we mentioned Kyle, we should just plug his thing. This this is going to be the, the greatest collection that's going to be online and then eventually a, a book thing with really thoughtful articles about just um, you know a, a great number of areas where pop culture and philosophy intersect. So um, Harry Potter, Aristotle, friendship. Yeah. So for those of, who are listening who are, uh, aren't familiar with the theories of friendship in philosophy, these really go back to Aristotle. And in uh, books eight and nine of his Nicomachean Ethics, it, see, it's eight, nine, or seven, or eight, um, he has this really detailed theory of friendship. And, and the core of it that most people have focused on was that there are three types of friendship. Mm-hmm. Friendships for virtue, friendships for pleasure, or friendship for advantage. Now, one of the things that struck me um, as I was going through and reading the Harry Potter novels myself, and now I'm reading them to my kids, and everything is that Aristotle doesn't have only three types of friendship. That when I started looking at the novels, I was noticing that there were five types of Aristotelian friendship. Hmm. And that really struck me as like, oh, wait a minute. This is very different. I mean, it is just standard in philosophy to say Aristotle's three types of friendship. Um, but when you start looking at friendships in a narrative sense, it they don't break down very neatly, mm-hmm. right? So the, the 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 three types are friendships for virtue, friendships for pleasure, friendship for advantage. Mm-hmm. And what I kind of realized from looking at the Harry Potter stuff was that when you come to friendships for pleasures and friendships for advantage, there's both benign and malignant versions of each one of those right friendship for virtue is its own thing mm-hmm. could maybe say a little and, bit about what that what that amounts to right that's maybe the the least obvious given the title right so the the big key here is that um to understand theories of friendship you have to kind of understand the motivations behind friendships mm-hmm. so friendships for virtue um for aristotle think or at least Aristotle thinks that those friendships are for the sake of the other to help them become more virtuous. Oh, okay. And in the process, right. you also become more virtuous. Right, right. And, and the big key there, of course, is that this notion that the this type of friendship is so deep that you are kind of taking on the concerns of the other's well-being. And with that, Right, you've got something very, very different than, say, the way that we interact with each other when we just hang out with people because it's pleasant, or we interact with people to gain some sort of advantage. Mm-hmm. And so the motivations are different, um, but also you'll notice that the valuing of the other person is almost always different. So friendships for virtue almost always see the other person as intrinsically valuable, mm-hmm. whereas friendships for pleasure and friendships for advantage tend more toward instrumentality. Right, right. But but so when you get to the Harry Potter um, stuff, obviously the, the three main characters 
there's this deep, deep notion of friendship between the three of them to the point where, you know, by post the novels, they're all actually now brothers and sisters, mm-hmm. right? By marriage. Right, right, um, right. But in books uh, seven, or, or book six, right? The, the Half-Blood the, Prince. The Half-Blood Prince, right? I've noticed that, okay, so we've got, you know, our friendships for virtue with the three main characters. But, you know, you've got the, the houses as well as, say, something like the Quidditch team, mm-hmm. right? Now, the Quidditch team is a group of people who come together for pleasure, right? For a pleasant activity, for fun. Right. But notice that there's this strong communal sense there and and this notion of teams that come with it. And so this is very benign kind of uh, way in which these people become friends. They work together. They're working toward a common goal. And that makes a big difference. Right. When you consider. In that same novel, right, the slug club, Mm -hmm. Horace Slughorn. Right. Well, there's that Christmas party. And. You know, what seems like normally you would consider a, a typical friendship for pleasure, which is a date, mm-hmm. right? Hermione takes McLagan to the Christmas party, and she reveals later on that she did it for a completely selfish motivation. It wasn't anything about McLagan. It was about that that was the person, if she went to the party with, would most upset Ron. Mm-hmm. Ah, yeah. And of course... Right. And of course, McClacken's reason for going there, as we find out, and he's, he's referred to like in very animalistic terms and have, very handsy. Right. I mean, he's there for like physical pleasures. Right. And of course, this date goes horribly. <laughs> she <laughs> tends uh, to avoiding him. Of course, Ron is upset. But you can see where there's this malignant sense of of pleasure, friendship, right? Pleasure mm-hmm. relationship in terms of that. Yeah. Good, and then, of course, good. we get to the. Then we get to the usefulness, and you can get both benign and, and malignant versions of that. The, the easy one to start with, of course, is the Death Eaters. Mm-hmm. The, you know, pick any point in the series in which the Death Eaters are there, right? They're, they're backstabbing of each other, right? Um, uh, Karkaroff you know, was willing to give up names of all sorts of people in order to protect himself, Um they, when the Death Eaters are always claiming that they were doing something um, for the Dark Lord, when it's pretty clear that it's they're doing it for their own aggrandizement, Voldemort is clearly just his, those relationships with the Death Eaters are pure usefulness. And of course, the moment someone runs out of usefulness, right? He believes Snape is his Death Eater to the very end, mm-hmm. kills him nonetheless because he thinks that by killing. Snape, he will gain control of the Elder Wand. Right, right. And he's wrong on just about every piece of factual information in there. Mm-hmm. But now compare that to the Slug Club, right? Slughorn's Club, by which he brings together all these people that he thinks are going to become something, he has this ability to see their futures in a sense, and how this will help everybody out. Of course, there's some self-aggrandizement for him, right? He's surrounded by these people. He gets tickets to the world. Quidditch World Cup um, and gets all sorts of advantages. But of course, he helps form relationships between other people that have the opportunity to be something more than just usefulness mm-hmm. in the future. And, and, and for course, the other so people too, right? There is a community there. Yeah, and, and, for, yeah. and useful for the other people as well as for him. Yeah. yeah. Whereas with, 
with the Death Eaters and Voldemort, all, ultimately it all comes back to Voldemort and his quest for immortality, right? And of course, that's part of the reason why nobody really kind of sticks with him to the end. They, they are either killed off or they switch sides because mm-hmm. it was never really about him. It was picking, as, as Malfoy says constantly, right? Draco says, well, you, you've picked the wrong side. Mm-hmm. And of Good. course, he comes to realize he's picked the wrong side. His mother comes to realize she's picked the wrong side. His father probably comes to think that he's picked the wrong side. Yeah, seemingly right at um, right at the very end of Deathly Hallows as, as they're walking away together, right? That's that's the takeaway. It, yeah, they're, they're walking away together as a as this communal unit, whereas – and they're walking away from Voldemort. Right. He, I mean, he's just getting more and more isolated because he was never really part of a community anyway. And so if, if you take all of these kind of observations, you kind of realize, uh, you know, there's certain things that Aristotle says that one of the problems with the, the two lower forms of friendship is that they can – these are friendships that can happen between bad men, mm-hmm. right? bad persons. And it was that idea, that line, along with my observations, like, well, wait a minute, maybe we've been interpreting Aristotle wrong all these time, all this time. Mm-hmm. This notion that there's only three types of friendship fails to kind of really get at the nuance. And of course, that's what I think is kind of amazing about literature, if we conceive of it as a different way of doing philosophy, mm-hmm. is yeah. that it provides insights that us over here doing philosophy in the more traditional sense, whether it's analytic or continental, might miss something. Right, and 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 it's all there in Aristotle the whole time. Um, exactly. But yeah, with with you know most um, historical figures, there's a standard line on every aspect of them, and things tend to not get questioned. Right. So one very prominent Aristotelian at some point announced there are exactly three kinds of friendship, and. That that becomes the the gospel. So yeah, this is this is great that that you can kind of draw this out um, using these examples. Right. Well, you know, and one of the things that's always struck me is like, I guess I'm kind of not surprised <laughs> that that there's this insight into it because I I went back and I when I was getting ready to do a presentation last year about this time, um, one of the things I remembered was. Um, my parents have this huge collection of science fiction stories, but they also maintain like a 25-year subscription to Isaac Asimov Science Fiction magazine. Oh, wonderful! That, and they and, and they've got all the copies and yeah, they've still got oh, copies of them. And in fact, when I was getting ready for the presentation, I said, "Hey, would you send me one?" Because I I wanted to get something. It was like I don't care which one, as long as the back had the back cover had the Science Fiction Book Club advertisement on it. Mm-hmm. And my mom was like. Okay, why? <laughs> and because I had remembered, right? It's always stuck with me that that back in the seventies and eighties, Science Fiction Book Club had this advertisement, um, and it, I kind of call it the "What If and Why Not?" Because that's where the that's where the big questions at the top of the Science Fiction Book Club advertisement. Mm-hmm. And then underneath that, they would they had a whole bunch of questions. So and then I went through and I looked at several different iterations of this. And so here, I mean, here are some of the questions that they put on there. What if you woke up with no memory of your previous existence? I'm like, okay, so now we're getting into John Locke and personal identity, mm-hmm. right? What if Earth were a shadow of the real world? I mean, that's taken straight from Plato. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. What if, what if God is a computer? Well, there's your t- typical metaphysical question. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, 
what I got really lucky with is because I, I wasn't expecting to see something like that. The following was the question: What if our first contact with aliens is with beings so different from us as to elude understanding? Mm-hmm. And of course, that question itself is directly related to: Can we form a relationship with them? Can we understand them? Can we have? Can we be friends with aliens? Right? Can we? How are we going to value? things or individuals that are so different from us? Can we bring them into our own moral community? And of course, that's where, you know, this stuff on friendship um, is is kind of really interesting to me because mm-hmm. um, it seems like at this moment in time with issues of refugees, immigrants, you know, issues of race in the United States, that that question is really kind of prominent, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. are these individuals so different from us that we can't understand them, or are we just not letting ourselves understand them, or are we motivated by something that gets in the way of our willingness to understand yeah, them? Yeah, possibly tribalism or some such. Yeah, tribalism, nativism, and this, that, and the other, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, what well, one of the things that's, uh, you know, you know when you talk about science fiction as opposed to fantasy, you know, Star Trek, all the various series are just filled with these types of, of kind of questions, right? So there's all these episodes, um, like, uh, in, you know, what the relationship between Geordi and Data, mm-hmm. right? Because Aristotle talks about how you have to have emotion in order to build friendships, right? Because this notion of, of well-being in the other. Um, and so... One of the questions is, well, can can Jordy and Data truly be friends if Data doesn't have emotional content, mm-hmm. right? And then there's, you know, there's several episodes with Data where it really questions his ability or his his limits, as it were, in forming friendships. And same with Vulcans and especially Spock, right? Um, but there's this great uh, deep, or, I'm sorry, Star Trek Enterprise episode called Twilight mm-hmm. in season three. Um, and in it, Jonathan Archer is, has this kind of like temporal infection. And so it kind of creates a bubble universe. And in that, though, he can, every morning he wakes up with no memory of the, you know, anything that happened between the day he got the infection and the moment he wakes up. Oh, cool. Cool premise. You would just, yeah. And so I mean, he remembers who, who he is. He remembers all of the main characters, but he doesn't have any new memories of them. And yet, it's an incredibly moving um, episode because you realize that the relationship between Archer and T'Pol is just really deep. And she's as Vulcan and, you know, trying to say, no, that's not what's going on, but it's kind of hard to say that that's not what's going on. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Right. So we, I mean, it, there, there's just all these, you know, from my, from my, at least my early age, right? Apparently I was being primed for kind of all this stuff just by hanging out at my parents' bookshelves, right? Looking at this cover and reading these science fiction and fantasy stories all the time. Nice. So what about, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say, you you go ahead. Oh, just speaking of of fantasy, um, what are some of the things in fantasy that, that bring out these ideas? Yeah. One of the things that's interesting, right, is so Whatever friendship is, um, it includes this notion of valuing of others. And when you start talking about valuing of others, 
um, this is where kind of a, I kind of start linking friendship and, and theories of moral status. And, and the notions of moral status is just kind of a, a set of other theories where you're talking about, okay, what kind of value does something have? Is it a thing and it's only instrumentally value or is it morally and intrinsically valuable? Mm-hmm. Um, Benjamin Hale calls that questions of moral considerability. Um, then there's questions of moral significance, which is how much value does something have? And then there's questions of moral relevance, which is, well, what is it that makes you morally relevant? Mm-hmm. And of course, philosophy has all these theories, right? There are these psychological views that say things like, well, it's rationality or agency or it's um, you know the ability to feel. Right, reflective Other endorsement. Other things look at more physical characteristics. Um, and you can see throughout um, uh, fantasy that these things kind of come up, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, if we, we, we take a look at, uh, say, the Chronicles of Narnia, right? When you get to the, the last battle and you're just, you know, there's always been this distinction between the talking animals and the mere beasts. But, of course, talking um, is the uses of words, right? And the uses, you know, the Greek word for word is logos, mm-hmm. right? And that, that Greek term, of course, is rich in meaning and related to mind and rationality. And so you kind of see that, well, there's this move toward us kind of a psychological definition with um, that. So there's kind of some agreements there. That it's not just that, you know, your physical being isn't enough. It's something about your psychological being that matters. And so I sometimes refer to these as like, we've got all these markers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got, uh, you know, can you use tools? Can you use language? Um, can you uh, use reason? Um, can you feel things, right? And then, of course, almost always opposed to that are the people who rely, rely on mere physical views, mm-hmm. right? Um, like your genetics and your heritage, right? Here's where the word blood comes up a lot, right? Um, you know, in the in Harry Potter, you get half bloods and muggles, right, and things like that. You you also get that in Narnia mm-hmm. when you get to like Prince Caspian, you find out that there's Cornelius and he's a half and halfer, a re- renegade dwarf, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because he's half human and half dwarf, right? We get this notion that the heritage is important, where the main characters in the first couple novels are referred to as the sons of Adam or the daughters of Eve. Right. Um, and so you, you can see that there's almost always like for whatever reason, in a lot of fantasy, blood almost always gets associated with with the bad characters and that other ways of looking at beings that aren't like ourselves fall into the category of kind of the, the better characters. Mm-hmm. And of course, a lot of these things just track straightforwardly. Right, a lot of these philosophical views. Um, have you ever seen? I mean, you, there's these movies out now, the Fantastic Beasts movies. For yeah, Harry Potter. yeah, yeah, I've seen them all, or both yeah, of have them. You seen, yeah, both of them. Have, have Have you seen like the original little short book that she made, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, which was kind of like the textbook at, at Hogwarts? Yeah, I've not read it, but um, I, I'm familiar with it. Yeah, so I mean, I, I highly suggest just reading like the little introduction. Mm-hmm. Um, because at the very beginning of the, the introduction is this is like okay, so it's this is called Fantastic Beasts. Well, what's a beast? Well, we contrast it with a being, 
right? And so there's like several pages where it goes through this, like, okay, so um, what counts as a beast and what counts as a being? Um, and so I'm, I'm going to read a little bit of it here, right? And yeah. the answer is a, a being is, quote, any creature that has sufficient intelligence to understand the laws of the magical community and to bear part of the responsibility in shaping those laws, right? I mean, that's that's such a Kantian way of understanding, like, moral considerability, right? Yeah, you're, yeah. you're part of a community. You can you're, – you're part of the community of ends where you can partake in um, the making of the laws, and then you see throughout the rest of it, right, pr prior to getting that, there's all these questions like, well, what about werewolves? Well, werewolves are human or wizard, muggle or wizard, but then sometimes they completely lose their rationality. Centaurs are rational, um, they, but they're only partially human-like. Mm -hmm. Trolls are human in, uh, humanoid in appearance, but they, you know, they're really not intelligent enough right. to Very be kind of part of that community, right? Um, and uh, there's like other things, like there's things that can talk, but clearly they don't talk with any any sort of meaning, right? So I mean, it's interesting because there it is in this nice short little piece, right? Um, do physical characteristics matter? Well, they sometimes they thought they did, but but now we realize they didn't, and then they they end up at this very Kantian notion, right? Or that, that it's, it's psychological notions of that involve community. Can you, do you have the right psychology to be able to form part of a community, right? Mm -hmm. Centaurs always keep themselves distinct from humans, even though they form their own communities, right? Um, the, the, the big spiders have their own community, right? But other than Hagrid, they can't they they human beings are possible food <laughs> right 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 did, did you and ever so, um oh go ahead no you go ahead um i was going to slightly change this up but did you ever read the novel wicked i did read the novel wicked but it's been a long time yeah it has been for me too but they do a, a similar thing and i think they're getting at um you know something analogous to you know homophobia there but um they carve things mm -hmm. up the exact same way right it's the the, the um, non-beasts are marking out the, the beasts and um, right. removing them from society. It's a similar kind of kind of dynamic. Right. I mean, of course, we, we see that throughout the Harry Potter novels too, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you know, the, the Narnia and you, like almost any fantasy novel. And of course, that's kind of the, the trick, right? That's the conceit. It's just fantasy. It's right. It's all these crazy beings right it's yeah. it's just science fiction and but yeah. of course there was a time as they were moving from you know from space opera into you know and the golden age of science fiction and moving forward into the 50s and 60s and there was all sorts of censorship going on that science fiction and fantasy became these places where people could play around with and cultural critique yeah yeah <laughs> right and 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 you wouldn't realize it was there unless you knew it was there, and then it almost hits you like a, a brick, right? I mean, what, once you realize what they're really doing, mm -hmm. calling into question these ideas of well, it's your your blood will out, and it's your blood that matters, um, and that this is how we distinguish people, right? And I mean, these are tropes of the late nineteenth and the early twentieth century that get used, and other people moving more toward these inclusive 
notions of of the human and moral community. Mm-hmm. You know, and this is you know again, I think that uh, you know fantasy does a great job of this, especially because there's there's kind of an already built in um, pantheon of different types of creatures that that we all recognize, whether they're they're dwarves and fairies and centaurs and fawns and and other things like that. And I think that uh, this new show, which is on, I guess, Amazon Prime, yeah, called yeah. Carnival Row, uh, is is doing a cultural critique of the current situation, not just in the United States, but in the world in general. Um, and you know, kind of setting up the the, uh, the few claims I'm going to make here is that the, the kind of the interaction between colonialism, refugees, um, uh, nativism, and then um, underlying all of that, this, these issues of moral sta- status and who we can be friends with. Mm-hmm. So, for since it's so new, I'll just quick little background. You know, this is a, a a show set in what looks kind of like late 19th century England. Um, it's on a, a place that's very earth-like. Um, the the main places that we find out about most of the place takes place in this. A city called the Berg, which is the capital of the Republic of Berg, um, and there are there's a, a ghetto called Carnival Row where a bunch of non-human creatures go, which go by the name of the Fey. Um, now, the most of the Fey are originally from another continent, which is roughly when you look at the maps, um, the Berg is kind of like where New York is um, in the United States, and there's this other continent that's kind of roughly where um, Africa would be. And that continent called Tirnanok is where most of the, the fae come from. So the fairies, centaurs, and fawns come from there, known as as the picks and the pucks and, and the centaurs. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that, that uh, the Berg and two other countries, um, uh, Quivera and Chibola, I think is what they're called, are basically fighting over control of Tirnanok. Literally, as kind of like one of the source materials says, what, there's someone who's, who's like, look, Tiernanak has just got unbelievable wealth. Right? It's got unbelievable natural wealth. And notice that in that kind of telling, it doesn't mention that any living being is there. Mm-hmm. So, of course, the Berg has colonized it. Um, there's a war that gets fought over it. And what's the result of almost any war, especially when it's two outside forces fighting over a third place massive refugees right and this is this is where it begins right um yeah this is where it begins i mean by by the i mean this is it's kind of hinted at right at the very first episode by the third episode they're kind of giving you this whole backstory Mm -hmm. right and of course um once you get to the point where you've got massive amounts of refugees you then wherever the refugees end up you get this split, right? There's the people who are welcoming of the refugees and then this, this very much more nativist version. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, at the foundation of all of this, right, what, one of the things I've always been interested in in terms of colonialism is what I don't see when I read stuff about colonialism, which is this notion that in order to be a colonist, you have to devalue morally the inhabitants of the place that you're colonizing, mm-hmm. whether that's the, the Indians in India, right? The native peoples here in the Americas, 
right? And you just see it as a place of, of instrumental wealth and opportunity mm-hmm. and not recognizing that there are people already there. So what you've done is you've devalued those people. And of course, when the refugees come over and nativism is also built upon this notion of devaluing, right, those people, right? To use uh, Benjamin Hale's language again, they're, they're not as morally significant as the local people. Right, right. And, of, and in fantasy, we mark that off really well, right? Which, which group are you? Are you human? Are you fairy? Are you centaur? Are you a fawn? Right? And, you know, it's, it's a really great way to sit there and raise questions by looking at their physical appearance and saying they're not us. Therefore, they're devalued. And it's a great way to critique, right, what's going on in the politics of Europe and the Americas and Australia, right? There's these wars that are being fought elsewhere, usually in places that have rich natural resources. Massive refugees are going to the places that are fighting these wars, and there's this huge backlash. People, you know, these the the refugees and immigrants are are put in. Um, uh, ghettos. Mm-hmm. The trip to get there is incredibly dangerous. Many of them die. Uh, the people who help bring them there are usually in it just for the money. They're not necessarily the people who are in it to help make these people's lives better, but to make profit off of them. And you know, all of this is sitting there right in Carnival Row. So you get this moral and social and political reasoning and argumentation about, look how awful this is. Mm-hmm. You you identify and you sympathize with these non-human characters because they have these character traits that you recognize as human, as morally relevant, and how badly they're treated and the, the policies that are developed around them. And so I think that you know this is a big chunk of what's going on, right, in Carnival Row is, is this is one of the arguments, right, is does, does breeding matter or does something else matter? Mm-hmm. In fact, there's a great quote in one of the later episodes where um, uh, one of the characters says, you know, because there's a character in there called Agraeus, um, and he's a puck, but he's very, very wealthy, something that people just don't understand. How did he get so wealthy? And then one of the characters said to him, won't it be great? One day when a puck will be noticed, not for the cut of his coat, in other words, not for his outwardly well, but for what is in his heart, mm-hmm. his character, for who he is, right? Which, I mean, you can't hear that without hearing Martin Luther King, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, his I Have a Dream speech. And the fact that the character of this puck is played by an African-American, I think that that's not an accident, right? My sense is they probably went and looked for an actor who was African-American in order to play that role, to be able to heighten that sense of, okay, here's our cultural critique, mm-hmm. right? And we can now, we, we can now override it onto our own cultural history and the, the, the moment that we're having, right? Because of course, at one point, I mean, to build a ghetto, you basically have to keep them in it, but to keep them in the ghetto, you have to build a wall. Mm-hmm. Well, right? yeah. So these are all the types of, you know, whether you agree or disagree with what's going on and what's being said, it doesn't change the fact that I think there is a real moral, philosophical, right, analysis going on through this literature 
of our current times and the underlying issues of friendship and moral status that, that go into all of it. Yeah, wonderful. Well, thank you very much for talking to us today. Yeah, no problem. As always, I, I look forward to these things and love the podcast. Great. I'm glad to hear. Um, I don't think I saw you on the program. Are you going to be at the um, Hawaii Con event in a couple of weeks? No, I'm not going to get to go to Hawaii Con this year. Uh, lots of just good personal things going on back at home that uh, I, I couldn't make it this year. I'm hoping to go back next year. Uh, but I will be going to the PCA again this year. And we'll be there as well, um, I, I hope. Yeah, I haven't submitted anything yet, but uh, you, you'll, you can hear a lot more about Harry Potter and friendship from me there. Nice. Uh, well, focus on on the Slug Club and the and and the Death Eaters, and kind of deepen the analysis as I'm getting ready to publish that article in um, uh, uh, Kyle's uh, Kyle's book project. Yeah, great. Well, look forward to seeing you at the PCA. Take care. Great. Look forward to seeing you guys too. Hey, that was great. I really enjoyed that. I, I wasn't able to be there for the interview because I'm both very busy and I got sick at the beginning of this week, which are not, which is not a great combination of things to be. Yeah, bad timing. Always great to talk to Jim, though. I, I look forward to seeing him at conferences and chatting periodically. I was able to listen to the interview, and I thought they, these are issues that I work on a lot, questions related to moral considerability and stuff. Um, definitely while I was doing the research fellowship that was an issue that was all over the place in, mm-hmm. in literature about animal welfare, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, one thing uh, that I got to thinking as I was listening to this is, um, so I, a lot of what Jim was talking about was like ethical extensionism, you know, and moving from sort of an anthropocentric view of the world to something mm-hmm. more exclusive of other sentient beings. Uh, and, and the way in which science fiction can help to motivate that, you know? So if we all, I remember our interview with Kyle, he kind of talked about something like this too. Mm-hmm. Um, but but you kind of, if you press pause on real life events and uh, instead look at themes of moral considerability in sci-fi, then you can resolve questions that might be too politically heated in real life. Um, and one thing that I was thinking about that is, I'm wondering if there's sci-fi stories that would lead us to do the same thing with like ecosystems. So some people, and this is controversial obviously, but some people extend the range of moral uh, considerability to things like all life, not just Mm -hmm. all sentient life. And some even want to go for a more holistic approach and extend the range of moral considerability to, um, to ecosystems and species and things like that. Uh, and I, as, as I was listening to Jim, I was thinking, you know, this would be an, a useful sci-fi tool uh, or sci-fi project, I guess, to get us to think in the same way about ecosystems as he's suggesting sci-fi gets us to think about other sentient creatures. Because it sure seems like often people don't want to think about climate change, mm-hmm. you right. know? So, yeah, when, when we talked to Kyle last year, just after the PCA, this is one of the themes that he was bringing up, right? That you have to sort of smuggle these ideas. Um, mm-hmm. he, he thought particularly the, um, he, he was talking about the Orville does a great job of sort of presenting mm-hmm. these moral plays without any of the customary attachments. Yeah. And then you, you sort of flip it around, right? Mm-hmm. So Jim's, Jim, I really liked that he was making that point as well. There, that there were things that were maybe taboo, mm-hmm. um, but you could talk about them in a, a science fiction sort right. of way. And, right, right. And yeah. hopefully people draw the right 
and I think conclusions. I think a lot of what Jim was saying was just that point, um, but with sentient creatures, and it would be interesting to do it to extend that range beyond sentient creatures to ecosystems and start to think about what obligations we might have to the natural world. That, but I wonder if it would be as as useful tool as useful a tool for that kind of project because I think sci-fi like Harry Potter. I, I think this is a great example of what Jim's talking about. But Harry Potter um, encourages, us, uh, encourages us to say, no, we should, you know, it doesn't matter um, what kind of blood something has. It doesn't matter what kind of body something has. Like, we need to care about centaurs and we need to care about house elves. And it does that, uh, it, it encourages that empathy well. But since what we're doing when we care about the natural world, uh, the, the climate, for example, isn't necessarily empathizing with climate. Mm-hmm. I wonder if these sci-fi plot lines could motivate reflection in exactly the same kinds of ways. Right. So um, even if you say something like, you know, you tell people the Great Barrier Reef is a living thing and it's in mm-hmm. a lot of trouble, um, they just see it as this big thing mm-hmm. that might as well be a rock structure and it's mm-hmm. they're, they're less apt to be motivated um, despite the, the significance of it. So same kind of thing, right? It's it's a tough sell to get people to, to think about ecosystems in this sort of way um, when you can barely get them to do it with other living things that aren't sort of exactly like them. Mm-hmm. Oh, also, um, something I noticed in the, in the interview, uh, not to correct you here, but yes, to correct you. Um, my contribution to the... To You're such co- a corrector. <laughs> My contribution to Kyle's project is on The Handmaid's Tale, not Marvel. Oh. So um, I'm doing The Handmaid's Tale as philosophy, uh, a paper on um, reproductive freedom and autonomy. Uh, the thing I'm doing for Marvel is for um, Corey and Kevin's collection. Um, oh, I, for um, are, are you sure? I, I, don't, I don't think so. I think you're, <laughs> I think you're doing um, everything on Marvel and nothing on The Handmaid's Tale. But if you want me to defer to you just because you're correcting me. Well, just so if people are looking out for that, like, oh, she's doing this piece on Marvel for Paul Graham. That's not happening. Yeah, good. Well, somebody else is surely doing that one. Yeah. I'm sure I, it's being done. Fine. I was probably wrong about my thing, too. It's not about Russian doll. It's about the New York dolls and, <laughs> and David Johansson and his alter ego, Buster Poindexter. But if anyone's looking for it, just look for Russian doll anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, cool. Well, sorry about that. Oh, no worries. And, and sorry for not having a better sense of what you're up to in your very busy life. <laughs> but you have so many things going. I, I can't keep track of them all. <laughs> Okay, right? It's time for what we're liking this week. So, just a few things, right? We did the, the long list last week because we'd been on vacation. So, um, I'm liking Room 104, right? It's back for, what, is this season three? Maybe? Is it th- three or four? Yeah. Yeah, somewhere in there. Just one episode so far. One episode, but yeah, it's, a, it's sort of a nice origin story about the room, right? You get a, a sense of how all the weirdness... Um, in the room is accounted for, although maybe ambiguously, yeah, and ambiguously, but yeah, it was, um, it was a, a kind of a fun backstory, a, a different twist, they had a different setting, so um, that was sort nice. of, sort of, yeah, right, yeah, it's an origin story. Um, okay, what about on um, becoming a god in Central Florida? We've started watching this. This yeah, is the new really Kirsten Dunst show. Yeah, um, about a pyramid scheme. It's, yeah, it's fun. 
about a pyramid scheme. She's it's, great in it. It's a period piece. Was it 90s? Um, oh, we can't call the 90s a period piece. We can call the I'm, 90s a I'm period piece. Now. Yeah. Okay. I know. And if you were born before the 90s, well, um, I was born before the 90s. You were, you're really old. Oh. I'm, I'm just, just okay. pointing it out. Um, okay, so the thing I'm most excited about, well, do we want to see anything more about that other than I think Kirsten Dunst is really great in it. Oh, um, fabulous performance. Yeah, it's got the guy who plays Buffalo Bill in um, Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, kind of <laughs> playing an interesting character. Um, I, was, I was hoping that it would be just kind of as wappy and silly as Black Monday, and I haven't been disappointed, right? That's... Um, it's not the same story by any stretch, but the characters are kind of as goofy and it's, it's got a similar feel. So mm -hmm. nice for, um, lighter fare. All right. So we went to the movies this week and I thought we were going to see a, an Adams family spinoff about cousin it, but this wasn't, this wasn't what I thought at all. So you we, didn't think that. We saw <laughs> it, it chapter two. Um, and, um, Fun. yeah. Don't want to say too much because um, I don't, you know, don't want to spoil too much. But I thought that that uh, it was in the spirit of Stephen King in a great way. Uh, yeah, every bit as good as the first one. Um, one thing I think that we could talk about without um, revealing too much is that in watching it, I, I was disappointed in the CGI. I, I thought it just kind of looked bad. Um, but you, you had an interesting hypothesis, right? About I mean. Again, I, I don't want to go into details too much because I don't want to spoil it for people. Um, but I think uh, I think Stephen King, despite how many times Stephen King stories have been made into um, movies and television programs, it's actually really hard to do um, because the uh, the books are just so much scarier when you're reading it rather than seeing it because you you know anything that you can imagine is is. Well, not anything you can imagine, but your imagination tends to do a better job at creating spookiness and leaving certain sorts of holes unfilled mm -hmm. than, than they can do with CGI, which often just looks like um, practically like claymation or something. Like you're very aware that it's not real. I mean, they can do remarkable things with CGI. But anyway, I think, I think they actually intentionally went over the top and campy with the CGI to... Uh, so that it wasn't taking itself too seriously because it had to do the stuff that's in the books. Right. So, um, so committed to the source material and then they said, okay, let's, I mean, they played some of it for laughs and those were some really good moments. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, to the extent that that's what's going on, I'm not as bothered. Mm -hmm. um, although it was, you know, every now and then kind of a momentum killer. Things are getting really good and things like, really? It's, you know, it's one of those, this is not in this movie, but, um, in so many other horror films, like when you see the evil tooth fairy, you, you just think, oh man. Just... Yeah, and I also think that there are some, so like the CGI, as it often does, included like uh, unlifelike distortions. And I think some unlifelike distortions are creepy and some unlifelike distortions are cartoonish. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like, so I think when CGI and um, horror is done well, it's because maybe you've just modified what something would look like naturally slightly enough to be unnerving rather than, you know, giving it big Google eyes or, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. Like, um, like, I think in, in horror movies when they make characters kind of move unnaturally in a way that a being wouldn't really move, that tends to be a little spooky, especially yeah. when it's, like, really stilted or fast. Mm -hmm. um, 
uh, within limits. But uh, and so that can be effective, but more often than not, it isn't. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. It works in the Babadook. Doesn't work in in other places. Um, it's because they don't show you too much in the Babadook, if I remember correctly. Yeah, right. Yeah. And what you see is just this thing kind of coming up in with a weird rhythm to it. Yeah, right? you know, and that's that's sort of sufficient um, on its own to be creepy. Okay, Rach, that's a wrap. Another episode is in the can, and once again, everything has come up Charbonneau. Please visit our webpage, that's I think ifan.com, all one word, to find out about upcoming episodes. If you would like to support I Think Therefore I Fan, please go to the webpage, click on the link at the top of the page that says Donate, and follow the instructions. As always, your support is greatly appreciated. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating. It helps. See you next time.